invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Timothy in the New Testament, 2 Timothy. Last week we concluded our series through the book of Daniel, and uh, now we're going to be getting a somewhat shorter series uh, through 2 Timothy. Now the plan, Lord willing, is to work through 2 Timothy up to Thanksgiving, and then uh, after Thanksgiving, uh, turn to begin one of the Gospels, either Matthew or, or Luke, I haven't decided yet. If you have a preference, maybe you can convince me either way. Um, but we'll be uh, doing, that's the plan uh, moving forward, but for now we're going to be reflecting um, upon 2 Timothy for the next few weeks. And specifically, I want us to be thinking about, because this is one of the pastoral letters, uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And of course, in some sense, all of the letters are pastoral. Uh, Paul is writing, or Peter is writing, or John is writing to the churches uh, to explain to them the significance and the impact of the gospel upon their lives, and it's very pastoral in every letter. But specifically, we speak of First and Second Timothy and Titus as pastoral letters because they are personal letters written to elders and pastors, Timothy and Titus, in the churches and, and explaining how the church ought to run and how the church ought to understand itself and how the church, what the church ought to pursue. And these are very important questions for us to be thinking about as well. What is the church? What resources are at the church's disposal? What's the purpose of the church? What's the goal of the, what's the mission, right? These are important questions, and I think questions that we don't often think about and more so often just assume. And yet we see the church being driven and pulled in so many different directions. Uh, long, not long ago, 20 years ago or so, um, the business model became the model for the church, right? Look to the businesses. How are they running things? How are they getting people in the doors? Let's imitate them. Nowadays, the church is more so looking to the celebrity culture, right? How are they filling arenas? How are they... Right, the church gets pulled in all these different directions. And so what we need is stability, and that stability is found when we reflect upon what God's word has said about the church and what we are as the people of God, the church of God here in New York City. And so that's what we're going to be um, thinking about as we come to... 2 Timothy, and today we're going to be reflecting upon the first seven verses of chapter 1. Before we read, though, let's pray that God would bless this word to us. Father, we thank you that as a people called out of darkness into light, as the very church of Christ, we ask that as we begin this study in 2 Timothy, that you would help us to more and more, to better understand uh, what the church is, who we are as your people here, what we are called to do and how we ought to glorify you. Father, may you also then help us to see the glory that belongs to the church, though hidden from the eyes of the world, yet revealed to us on the pages of Scripture. Father, may the glory of the body of Christ here be evident and um, seen by eyes of faith here in this congregation, that we might grow and mature in Christ, our King, our Head. We pray this all in his name. Amen. 2 Timothy, beginning at chapter 1. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. 
I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So far from God's holy word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we often uh, find ourselves, especially within the context of the church, speaking about glory. The glory of God, uh, the glory of his work. Uh, But sometimes the very definition of what is glory may elude us at times. What what exactly is glory? What What are we speaking about? Well, I give an illustration to kind of explain. Um, a few years ago, I was with a friend um, watching a college football game, uh, Arizona Sun Devils, probably not the best illustration for a sermon, but that was the team we were, he was rooting for. And um, I had zero interest in this game. I have no commitment to that team whatsoever, and yet I'm sitting there watching the game with him. And it's a super close game, back and forth, back and forth. And as the game's going on, right, I'm getting more and more drawn into it. Until there's a final drive, uh, the Arizona Sun Devils were down, I believe it was even just six points, or they needed a touchdown to win. And um, final play of the game, the clock runs out, Hail Mary down the field, the, re- the receiver catches it, touchdown, and all of a sudden, I, beginning with zero interest in the game, I find myself jumping off the couch, like ex- with my hands raised, but, uh, having witnessed what, you know, what just happened, and we're high-fiving. And, what was that? Well, it's glory. It's glory is the public display of something that's praiseworthy, right? And often we speak of God's glory because when we see who God is on display, saving and redeeming and working, creating, we give him glory. We we praise him for that. And of course, you know, it's a very minuscule fading glory. I'm sure I don't even remember who threw that touchdown pass, who caught that pass. I don't remember who they played, right? It's It's a glory that's fading, but it was a glory nonetheless. That's what glory is. When we think not only then about the glory of God, but we also ought to think about the glory that belongs to the church. The body of Christ could often, can be referred to as the glorious body of Christ. There is a glory, not only to Christ, but to his body that has him as its head. The church throughout the scriptures, is spoken about as the body of Christ. We here, as, 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 a, as a family of God, as those united by faith in Christ, are the body of Christ. And the glory that belongs to our head is a glory that is found also here in the church. Now, it's not a glory that is, that is at times perceptible, to the eyes of the world, in fact, when the, church, when the people of the world look upon the church, the church often doesn't look very glorious at all, doesn't look very impressive at all. And yet, with eyes to see, as we look through the lens of God's word, we find that the church indeed is glorious. In fact, the glory that belongs to the church is of far greater magnitude, far greater weight than the glory in any sports arena than the glory in any concert hall, than the glory in any other place on the face of this earth. And that's our desire, ultimately, as we come to think about 2 Timothy, that we might see, through the lens of God's word, the glory of the church. 
if there's one doctrine among, there's many, but if you can maybe pinpoint one, the doctrine of the church is so misunderstood and uh, also uh, not only just misunderstood, but also distorted in so many ways. As I asked the questions earlier, you know, what is the church? What's the mission of the church? What's the purpose of the church? What's the goal of the church? What are the resources of the church? These are questions that we ought to know, and yet there's great confusion around us. And so as we think upon 2 Timothy, we're going to be thinking about the glory that belongs to the church. And so as we dive into these verses here to open up this uh, new series, The Glorious Body of Christ, we have five things we want to consider about the church um, in these verses here. First, the head of the church. Secondly, the hope of the church. Thirdly, the heart of the church. Fourthly, the heritage of the church. And then fifthly, the heat of the church. So five uh, things we want to consider about the church, beginning with the head of the church. Paul begins by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul, as an apostle, was one then sent and commissioned and equipped by the Lord Jesus Christ as one who carried the very authority that Christ himself exercise over his church. Paul's position as an apostle in the church reflects the reality that Jesus Christ is the head of his church. The head of the church, the one who leads and governs the church, is Jesus Christ. And Paul is an ambassador of Christ. Paul is sent, and as he speaks and writes to the churches, he writes and speaks with the very authority of Jesus Christ. That's what's reflected for us here. And therefore, as Paul um, 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 writes this letter, he writes this letter to Timothy with the very authority of the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And Christ, of course, is the head of the church as one who has come to save his people. Right? We read about that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he comes uh, to as a king, humble and lowly, to redeem his people who were languishing under the power of sin, He comes to bring about the forgiveness of sins by hanging upon the cross. And there he died for the sins of his people. He died for your sins if you've come to trust in Jesus Christ. And then he was raised and ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. There is no one more glorious. There is no no one in all the earth who possesses more glory Then Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God in heaven. Up against any celebrity, up against any athlete, up against any politician, the glory of Jesus Christ overwhelms it. Like trying to take a little dollar store flashlight and pointing it at the sun. It's of zero weight before the glory that Jesus Christ possesses as the one who holds in his hands the keys of death and Hades. The one who will never die again. And the one to whom all the nations of the earth will be given as a heritage. There's no one you can look to, no other person you can point to, to find more glory than belongs to Jesus Christ, who is coming again. And he is the head of of the church, the church being his body. Right, so when Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, 
You know, we could become so familiar with the name Christ Jesus, right? Apostle of Christ Jesus. I mean, but pause and think about who, that, who he is and who he is today in glory in heaven, looking down upon his church, with his church, present with his church by the power of his spirit. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus, which means that Christ in all of his glory sends Paul and he sends the other apostles to his churches to speak and write with his very authority. Christ speaking to his church. It became popular. I don't think it's as popular today, but the red letter Bibles, maybe you've seen those. Jesus' words are in red. It's kind of silly if you really think about it, right? I mean, as if those words maybe carried more weight. Well, these are the words of Jesus. Well, no, the words of Paul are the words of Jesus to you. They carry the same weight, the same authority. It's Christ himself writing these letters through John, through, uh, through Paul, through Peter. And the one who is all glorious sends an apostle out of his love and care and concern for his church. He sends Paul as an apostle, an ambassador who speaks on his behalf. And Paul himself as one who was sent, as he says, by the will of God. Right? Paul wasn't one who took this to himself. Right? Paul wasn't at a, you know, a job fair and saying, what can I do with the rest of my life? Well, apostle looks kind of interesting. Right? No, Paul was, in fact, doing the very opposite of being an apostle. He was persecuting Christ and his people. But by the will of God, he was changed. Which also then reminds us and reflects upon the love of God for his people, for Paul. As he took one opposed to him and now made him an apostle. One sent with the authority and the power and the glory of Christ to speak to his church. The head of an organization often uh, says a lot about that organization. right? The head of a nation says a lot about that nation. Who they are electing, who they are putting in positions of power. What does it say about the church that it has Jesus Christ risen from the dead as its head? That fact alone ought to change us in, in tremendous ways. Right? We belong to the body of Jesus Christ. The glorious body of Christ where we have Christ as our head. And as our head, he then governs us by his word and by his spirit. Never apart from one another, right? Not just his word in a very rationalistic sense. And not just his spirit in a mystic sense. But his word and his spirit leading us and governing us. That we might more and more submit to him, walk in his ways. Right? The, the mission of the church, the purpose of the church, the meaning of the church. All of that flows from the head of the church, Jesus Christ. It's not for us to determine these things. But it's Christ who has determined them for us. And so when we think about the glorious body of Christ, we begin with our head. We begin with Jesus Christ. We begin with his glory and his word and his spirit as it leads and it governs us. It also reminds us then, as he leads us by his word and his spirit, as he sends Paul as an apostle, that the energizing core, and this is going to come out in our other points as well, the energizing core of all that the church engages in and does is the word of God. It's Christ's word that leads us. And his truth that is to be maintained and guarded and proclaimed in the church. Right? The, the center thing in the church, as we have Christ as our head, is his word and the office of Paul as an apostle of Christ Jesus helps us to emphasize that, right? Paul brought words. Paul wrote letters, right? 
words and the words of Christ are central as a very energizing core. Take that away and the church is dead. Right? Take, remove the battery from your toy, right? Some of the children here, right? If you take the battery out of your toy, it's not going to work anymore. Remove the word from the church of God. It may still stand as a building, but it's no longer functioning as the church of Jesus Christ. Right? The word is that energizing core of all that the church engages in as Christ leads us by his word and by his spirit. So that's our first point, right? The head of the church, Jesus Christ. Secondly, the hope of the church, right? Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to, and that can be translated in various different ways, with the objective of, um, with the aim toward, um, in light of, various ways of looking at this, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. The promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, right? So, with Christ as our head, we have great hope in this promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Now, maybe a way of drawing this out is to ask this question. When do you need a promise of life? Or when do you most need a promise of life? Or maybe when do you most want a promise of life given to you? When you face death. And, and when, we are, when we go on to read the rest of 2 Timothy, we're going to find that Timothy as he leads this church, is going to face not only death, but its consequences in a life of suffering for the sake of the gospel. In the light of all that Timothy will face and the church will face, we have a great hope in the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 8. We didn't read this verse, but notice. Paul says to Timothy, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his Prisoner, right? So before we even get to Timothy, what's Paul's situation like at this moment? Well, Paul, right now, is imprisoned in Rome. In fact, Paul mentions his chains twice in this letter. Paul is bound. And he's bound not because he was a criminal. He was bound because of the word of God. And Paul himself, then, is encouraging Timothy in his own chains. As he says... In the middle of verse 8, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And he's going to go on to talk about various opponents and various ways in which he will indeed suffer for the sake of Christ. Again, we need a promise of life. Most, uh, most, it's most needed in the face of death. Paul himself at the very end of this letter says this, and this actually ties into our um, sermon series in Daniel. But he had said this, as Paul himself is soon recognizing that he's soon to be uh, put to death, not from old age, but from martyrdom, for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And though he was abandoned by all as he's giving his defense before the Roman governor, it says in verse 17, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it, So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. This is the outplaying of the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, right? By holding on to that promise, by believing that promise, Paul was able to endure 
all that he had to endure for the sake of the gospel. Timothy was able to endure all that he had for the sake of the gospel. And as he held on to that promise, he was assured that God, though he may be put to death, would indeed bring him safely into his heavenly kingdom. That's the place in which the life that is in Christ Jesus is fully and perfectly enjoyed. It is the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. This is the hope that the church alone possesses. No other organization, no other place in this world has such hope. When, when, when dire circumstances befall something out, another organization, another place, it, it, it dies out and it goes away in the dustbin of history. But the church has a true hope. The glory of the church is found in the promise of the life that it holds on to. And that life is one that is secure, forever secure, because it is in Christ Jesus. It is the life of his resurrection. Paul says also in 2 Timothy in verse uh, 10, regarding the gospel, he says it, it is now manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. This is what Christ has done, right? The head of the church has abolished death. And the head of the church has brought immortality and life to light. And it's found in the promise of life he has given to his church. And as we hold on to that promise, we have great glory. Because it leads God's people and enables God's people then to live for him no matter the consequences. All that we might suffer for the sake of the gospel, none of it could break the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. You can face all things, you can endure all things, for the sake of the gospel, as you hold on to that promise. No need to cower, no need to be timid, no need to fear, as Paul's going to instruct Timothy later, right? If you hold on to that promise, then you can go forward, no matter the consequences. Paul could go forward, though death awaited him. He knew it. He's, this, this is likely his final letter that he wrote. Death was imminent, all for the sake of the gospel. But Paul went forward. His feet kept going. He didn't turn back because of the hope that he had in the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. We've seen the head. We've seen the hope. Thirdly, we want to think about the heart of the church, right? So we can think very individually about these things, right? The promise of life, I need to hold on to that promise. But that promise is given to the church, right? And Timothy is to hold that promise out to his congregation where uh, he's serving in Ephesus, right? So Paul is in Rome, imprisoned. Timothy is in Ephesus. And if you remember, when Paul left Ephesus, it's, it speaks in Acts of, of the people gathering and weeping because they knew they wouldn't see him again. They knew Paul was sailing off to his death in Rome. And so Paul himself begins to use this language of endearment, uh, Paul himself, not just using the language, but from a heart that truly loved Timothy as his own son, right? To Timothy, my beloved child. Uh, there's a tenderness to Paul's writing, right? He's not a hardened man in prison. He's a tender man who has loved the Lord and he loves Timothy as his child in the faith. And, and this reflects a broader point that the church, that there is a heart to the church, there's a, it, it, reflecting the family uh, nature of the church 
of God, right? We refer to one another as brother and, and sister. We refer to God as our father. Christ as our elder brother. Uh, within the context of the church, we have spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers and spiritual sons and spiritual daughters, right? This is the heart of the church. As Christ is our head and we're given a great hope, so too we are united in him as the very family of God. And Paul shows us the tenderness that he has for Timothy and the tenderness and the love that we ought to have for one another. And something that I think has been one of the, one of the areas that God has truly blessed us here. I think through the work of Pastor Paul and through the, the, the work, of course, of the Holy Spirit, but the, the, the preaching of God's word that has knitted this congregation together as a family. And that when others come in, that's often what they comment upon. What love, what, what kindness, people speaking to me, people interested, people meeting. In the same regard, there's also the deep sadness when we have members leaving, uh, from moving, moving on uh, to various other places. We think of our uh, beloved family, the Zatlins, right, soon to depart from us. Right? These things hurt us because it's the family of God here. And there's a heart to the church, right? And, and I think that's something that often could be lost, especially at times, not to give a broad criticism. I think there's wonderful Reformed churches like ours and other places. But at times, the, heart, the church could feel heartless, right? Where is, the, is there something pulsing in the church? Is there love for one another? And that's what needs to grow more and more in the church, reflected in the tender words to Timothy, my beloved child. And notice in these verses 3 through 7, Paul's concern Right, he's in chains, he's soon to die, but he keeps speaking about Timothy. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Right? What a beautiful thing Paul demonstrates for us that within the church a consideration for others as even more significant than themselves. Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus. And you can imagine, right, the thinking that he could that could have entered his mind. I'm an apostle. I'm significant. I'm important. I'm needed. What's going to happen to the church when I'm gone? But that's nothing that he doesn't write anything along those lines. He's concerned with Timothy and he is concerned with the church. He's going to tell Timothy later that what he's received Paul, and he's handed to Timothy. Timothy is to hand on to those entrusted as well. Not the office of the apostle, but the message itself. And that same message, in obedience to Paul's um, exhortation to Timothy, has been handed down even as it's come to us. And we'll talk about that more in our fourth point. But we see here the way in which Paul shows us how we ought to love one another. There's a heart to the church. And that love is part of the glory of the church. And that heart reflects the heart of our Savior beating among us, pulsing among us, enlivening us to live as his disciples in love for one another, considering others more important than myself. Thinking that, not thinking that I'm necessary, that I'm, I must be involved, I must be, but thinking of serving and loving and encouraging one another. Paul remembers Timothy. Paul prays for Timothy. Paul remembers his tears. 
He's reminded of his faith. Are these things that may come to your mind regarding your brother and your sister? I think we often take it for granted that there's other people who have the same faith as me. Right? We can often take that for granted. What a wonderful thing to come. And I know we do enjoy this. I'm not, I'm not saying we're, we're missing out and totally ignoring this. But I think we do recognize this here. We go out into a world in which we're working and with various other things when we come together. It's why it's so lively and it's why we love to see one another. Because there's a faith that we share together. And we're reminded of the sincere faith of one another. Maybe we're reminded of tears that were shed. Maybe we will be reminded in the future of tears. Are we praying for one another? These are the things that Paul is showing us at the heart. There is a heart to the church. And so the glorious body of Christ is found in its head. It's also found um, in its hope, but also in the heart that is found in the church. Fourthly, the heritage. The glory of the church is found in the heritage that the church has. Interesting, as Paul writes to Timothy, he, one, says, I thank my God whom I serve as did my ancestors, right? So Paul is recognizing that he's on a line of continuity that doesn't start with him, but it goes back prior to him as well. Likewise, he says to Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well, right? So Paul is situating him and Timothy, not at the beginning, but in the midst of this movement that's going on, that it came before them and will continue after them as well. Right, right? They're, not, they're not the end and they're not the beginning. They're caught up in the middle of a movement. And, and, and they situate themselves there, recognizing that they themselves have a heritage and they themselves are leaving a heritage for the church. And therefore, when we think about the church... We ought to also then have in mind the heritage of the church as part of its glory. Not only its history, of course, and now at times within that history there are dark moments, but the heritage of the church in terms of the message it has brought to the world now for some 2,000 years, going back to Christ and the Apostles, a message of salvation, a message that could be found nowhere else. As we said earlier, right, the energizing core of the church is the word. And the heritage that the church passes on, receives and passes on, is a heritage of the word, of a message. A message of salvation, of good tidings, of joy for the world. This is the heritage that, again, a message that could be found nowhere else. No politician could speak a message of salvation that comes and is heard in the church. No celebrity or, or, or musician could play a song that brings salvation like the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right, no athlete, after their uh, very deep uh, uh, interview, after their uh, game-winning catch, could give a message of salvation to the world. And right there, very deep afterwards. <laughs> They're not really, if you've actually listened to them. But the message of the church is wonderful, joyful, the message of the church is a great heritage. It's a message of salvation that is found nowhere else. And this is the heritage that we, that we receive and we're thankful. We look back. That's why we sing the ancient hymns and we sing um, and, and read old books. And we, and we don't come to the scriptures if we're the next new big thing. We're not new. We're continuing the line. What was handed down to uh, Timothy was handed down 
uh, to another, to another, to another, handed down to Pastor Paul, handed down to myself, handed down to the elders. Right? It's the same message. And this is the heritage of the church of Jesus Christ. A message, a heritage that is of great glory for those who have eyes uh, to see. So we've seen the glorious body of Christ, with Christ as our head, the hope of the promise of life, the heart of the church as a family, the heritage of the church, and then lastly, uh, probably the the worst uh, of the five that I had to come up with with these names, but the heat of the church. Or as Paul says in verse 7, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control, right? So the apostle uh, Paul is writing to Timothy, and Timothy is often known as kind of timid, uh, likely quite young in his ministry, dealing with very fierce and and, uh, uh, intimidating opponents. And Paul is reminding him first that God gave you a spirit, not of fear, but of power, to do the work of God, of love, to, 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 um, to feel what God feels, and of self-control. The word for self-control could also be translated as um, uh, sound mind, um, being clear and reasonable in your thinking, um, able to articulate. In that sense, if you think of power as part of, um, of the will, and love as the affections, and the self-control as part of the mind, right? It's a whole person... Um, an all-encompassing kind of spirit that God has given to Timothy, not to fear, but have power, love, and self-control. And Timothy is told then to fan into flame the gift of God. There's debate what exactly this gift is, what was given to Timothy. Some say it simply was just his ordination, because Paul speaks of laying on of hands. So he was ordained to this office, and in this office you have no reason to fear, but a spirit of power, love, and self-control. That's possible. Some have said that it was a special gift that Paul endowed Timothy with to carry out his ministry, though we wouldn't know exactly what that special gift is or was. Some have said it's simply the message, the the gospel that was handed down. And the calling now that Timothy has, a holy calling as Paul calls it. Whatever it might be, we recognize that God gifted Timothy through the Apostle Paul And in light of the other portions of Scripture, we know that God has gifted each and every one of you. And the same exhortation to Timothy to fan and to flame your gift, to kindle that gift, is an exhortation to you. The gift that God has given you, fan it into flame. Put it into practice. Don't let fear keep you from it, but rather walk in the the gift that God has given you with power and love and self-control. And that gift, like Timothy's gift, was for the building up, the edification of the church. And so to use your gift, employ your gift, kindle your gift that has been given to you in Christ to love and serve the church, right? Uh, the heart of the church is found, right, in the family of God and loving one another. The heat of the church is found in serving one another, in living for one another, in sacrificing for one another, in using our gifts for the sake of one another. Of course, those two things are tied together, right? We're going to serve and love, and those things are together, heart and heat. But this is part of the glory that belongs to the church of Jesus Christ. We've seen then, just to come to a conclusion here, that the church is the glorious body of the risen 
and reigning Lord of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ. And with him as our head, he gives us great hope, a hope of the promise of the life that is in him, that we might endure anything, even death itself, for his sake. He has also then um, given us a heart for one another. As the body of Christ, we're knitted together as the family of God to love one another. We're given a heritage to pass on from one generation to the next. And we're also given then the heat of the Spirit of God at work in us, moving us to serve one another, to love one another. And we do this all for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so as we press on into this series and we think about the glorious body of Christ, may you too have eyes to see the glory that only belongs at Messiah's Reformed Fellowship and all other faithful churches of Jesus Christ as they gather under him as their head and seek to bring him honor and glory as we seek to do here as well. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for the church of Jesus Christ that you've given your son to this world and that you have um, given to him a people, a people for whom he died and a people that he is gathering together to worship and glorify him. Thank you that he is our head. And Father, we pray that you would then give us eyes to see the glory that belongs to his body here on the earth. And that we might then, as we see that glory, we might shine the light of it in this world, living as his people, loving one another, sacrificing for one another, serving one another, and bearing witness to the glory that belongs only to Jesus Christ, the risen and reigning King of kings and Lord of lords, in whose name we pray. Amen.